welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the Gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the City of Lagos and beyond renewed by the Gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Good morning, church. Our Bible reading is from Mark 1, 16 to 20. When I'm done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Please, let's respond by saying thanks be to God. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. Can we just take a moment and acknowledge the presence of God here? I don't know about you, but God's presence has been mighty from the beginning of this service. God, we honor you. We bless your name. We give you praise. You are my God. You are my God. You are my God. You are my peace. You are my strength. You are my hope. You are my God. You are my God. You are my God. Jesus. You are my peace. You are my strength. You are my hope. Think about the words we are singing. Personalize it. Personalize it. You are my God. You are my God. You are my God. You are my peace. You are my strength. You are my hope. In you I trust. In you I trust. In you I trust. In you I trust. You are my God. You are my God. You are my God. You are my God. Lord, this is our confession this morning that you are our hope. You are our strength. We have no other God but you. You are our God. We ask that you will speak to us, O God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. We are continuing our series on the book of Mark. It's titled, Introducing the Son of God. I'm trusting that God is going to bless us today as we look into his word. 
I want to start with a question. Don't worry, it's not a quiz. Where were you on the day the world changed? For many of us, the last world-changing day was probably 9-11. I know a lockdown changed the world, but it was not a specific day. Yeah? And so I remember where I was that day. I was in Port Harcourt playing table tennis with my brother. And I think he went to go and use the loo, and he just started shouting my name. So I ran inside, and we just stood looking at the TV in shock. Well, here's the thing. Even though the whole world changed that day, it did not particularly affect me. Because I was a 14-year-old living in a small town in Port Harcourt. I'm 35 now, don't calculate. But there are other important days. These are not days that the whole world changes, but there are days that your whole world changes. Maybe it's a day that your child was born. Maybe, unfortunately, it's the day that the parent died. Maybe it's a day in November 2010 when, in Anambra State, a place called Umunya, when you meet the love of your life. <laughs> the events of these days, my wife is not here. The events of these days do not necessarily, oh, hi. <laughs> the events of these days do not necessarily even affect other people, affect a lot of people, but they have a profound impact on you and change the trajectory and direction of your life. Now, the passage we're going to be looking at today, Mark chapter 1 from 16 to 20, it's somewhat unique because in this passage, both types of world-changing events coincide. It's both a day that for four men in this passage, their entire world was, was changed, but also the whole world was changed. Why? God was fulfilling his plan to save the world, and he was recruiting the people that would be his closest followers. Their lives will never remain the same, but also the whole world will never remain the same. These four men in this passage, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, go on to become four of the most important men in the history of the entire world. But curiously, the events of this day seem to be, like we've heard, we read, had it read to us, seem to be quite ordinary. Here's the point. Life-changing moments do not always go about announcing themselves. We think it will happen to us the way it happened for Julius Caesar, who was a Roman general and a dictator. He's the guy the month of July was named after. And Isaiah kept telling him, beware the Ides of March. Beware 15th of March. 15th of March. 15th of March. It's an important day. And the guy himself did not even take it serious. And on the 15th of March, he was killed. It doesn't often happen that way. It seldom, seldom happens that way. For Peter, Andrew, James, and John... It was just another day at work. They were casting their nets. They were mending their nets. Doing what it is that fishermen do. But that day turned out to be different. Why? Verse 16 tells us that Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee. Maybe you have walked in here like just another Sunday. I want to tell us that Jesus is present here. It may not be a day that the whole world changes, but it can be a day that your individual world changes. And we're even in a better position than the disciples because they had no idea that the Son of Man, the Son of God, will be visiting them that day. But we know where Jesus is. We know that Jesus is here. And we know what meeting him does. And we have two responses. We can be like the people of Nazareth that Jesus met them. And they said, is this not the carpenter's son? It is not another Sunday service. It is not yet another sermon. And people encountered the Son of God, God himself, and came away unchanged. 
Or we can be like the woman with the issue of blood that said, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made whole. And I pray that today we'll be in that second category because an encounter with the Son of God is able to transform and change the trajectory of our lives. And so again, let's just close our eyes and power our hearts again. Tell God, God, speak to me today. Speak to me today. Speak to me today. Speak to me today. Change me today. We have come with open hearts. Let the ancient word impart. Lord, we've come to you. We ask that you will speak to us. We ask that you will change us. We ask that you will transform us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The title of the sermon today is Following the Son of God. Can we say it together? Following the Son of God. One more time. Yeah. So a bit of background. What has been going on? Jesus had just started his ministry. We saw last week that after he was baptized and tempted, he went into Galilee and began to proclaim the gospel. John chapter 1 from 14 to 15, it says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In this text today, we are going to see him choosing the men that will eventually carry on his work. Men that he will pour his life into. Men that will be at the forefront of what God was doing. But what kind of men does God choose? A lot of times, lessons are drawn from this passage. We are told that the men that Jesus chose were hardworking. We are told that these men were not idle. But I think that is missing the point. What is clear is that for what Jesus had in mind, these men were not the best that Israel had to offer. There are better places Jesus could have gone to if he went to recruit followers. There are people with better pedigree. There are people better educated than fishermen. God's call does not originate in any qualities that Peter, Andrew, James, and John have, but because the Father, out of his great love, had chosen them for his purpose and plan. And in many ways, the call of this man is the call of many of us. See how Paul puts it. For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. But actually, it applies to every single one of us because none of us deserves the grace of God. The good news of the gospel is that God does not choose us based on who we are or what we have done, but according to his mercy. We often think that we need to clean up our acts before we come to Christ so we can be somewhat deserving of his grace. One of the men in this passage seems to think so as well. In Luke's account of this passage, in Luke chapter 5, Peter's response to Jesus is to say, depart from me. Go away from me. From a sinful man. Maybe you can relate to Peter. Maybe it's a sin you've committed over and over again, and you're like, I don't see the point of returning to Christ until I can conquer this by myself. Maybe you are not even a Christian and you're saying, I don't think God can love or forgive, love me or forgive me because of what I have done. What we see in this passage is that it is Jesus that does the choosing, not you. 
If you're struggling with your sins, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. God is the one that chooses, not you. What does Jesus tell them? Verse 17, he says, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, in verse 15, he had said, repent and believe in the gospel. And now he's saying, follow me. And sometimes people separate these two statements. So here's how it's often put. There is the base level of Christianity. That is being a Christian. And then there's a higher level, a more fuller option model, which is being disciples. It's like Christian Pro Max. Or if you're, you know, or Christian Ultra, because Android lives matter. You should use Android. <laughs> but that's not, what it, that's not what it is at all. I think part of the reason verse 15 and verse 17 are juxtaposed in this place is that it's answering the question, what does it look like to repent and believe the gospel? And the answer is this. It looks like following Jesus. But we need to investigate this word follow further. Because the problem with words is that they change meaning over time. And so we cannot assume that we know what it means to follow Jesus. What happens when we hear the word follower? Our mind goes to social media. You see someone that has content that you're interested in, and so you make some kind of commitment, you click a button, and then they begin to show up on your feed. But this feed is also controlled by the algorithm of the app based on your online habits. And so our predominant idea of the word follower is one that is centered around us. That is about us and what we are interested in. And many times we import this view of following to Christianity. Far too often when we call ourselves followers of Christ, what we mean is that our engagement with Christ is one that is centered around us. It is about us and what we are interested in. We are fine with Jesus as long as he fits our agenda. As long as our goals coincide, as long as our motives align, there is no problem. Honor your father and your mother. I want my children to honor me. Of course, that's fine with me. Do not steal. Sign me up. But sooner or later, we encounter something in the Bible that we totally disagree with. Sooner or later, Jesus is going to rock our boats. Maybe it's about how we spend our money. Maybe it's about our view on sex. And what happens in that time is I will say, Conductor, Drop me. I'm not doing it again. I'm not part of this. And I think these situations are actually quite helpful that God actually allows them to come off, come our way because it reveals to us who it is that we are truly following. Because it's possible to think or to say that we are following Jesus, but who we are truly following is ourselves. It is possible to be around Jesus to be in the vicinity of Jesus, to even travel with Jesus, and yet not be truly following him. There's a group of people in the Bible notorious for this. They are called the Pharisees. Have you ever wondered, if you've read the Gospels, why Jesus and the Pharisees were always quarreling? Why they were always having one issue or the other? The simple answer is that they were always around Jesus. Always. Always asking questions. Always engaging from different kind of motives. What we learn from the Pharisees is that proximity to Jesus is not the same thing as discipleship by Jesus. The 
does this describe you? Are you around Jesus for your own motives? Maybe your wife or your husband or maybe a babe is the person that is bringing you to church. Maybe you're here because you want connections. Maybe it's just what you do. That's how you were raised. I go to church on Sundays. Are you hanging around Jesus but yet not following him? Proximity to Jesus does not mean discipleship from Jesus, by Jesus. Here's something else we see. There's something else about our idea of following. It's possible to follow someone on social media, but they don't even show up on your feed at all. Yeah? And sometimes you're looking for something and you realize, realize that oh, we actually, we're actually mutual self. And for some of us, this is the situation in our lives. We follow Jesus on paper, but this in no way affects our life. There is no difference in our lives from our following Jesus. Following Jesus for us means that Jesus appears on our feed once every seven days for two hours. After Sundays, that's it. Sometimes he doesn't even appear for a while. That's a word, that's a term that Christians in the previous generation used to describe this state of affairs. It's called backsliding. And backsliding is really a very apt term. Because you have not turned away from Christ. You can still see him from a distance. But you're no longer following. And when he sleeps out of sight, you don't even notice. And then you wake up months later and realize it's been six months since I read my Bible last. Brothers and sisters, we cannot assume that we are following Jesus. We must ask ourselves, what did Jesus really mean when he called this man and calls us to follow him? And this passage is really helpful because it shows us three things about following Jesus. That following Jesus reorients us that it is gradual and that it is worthwhile. The first one, following Jesus is reorienting. There's a word that is typically used as a synonym for following Jesus. So I'll use this interchangeably. It's called discipleship. Disciple, a disciple simply means a student. But here's the thing. A student does not, the word student does not stand on its own. In the same way, the presence of a law implies the existence of a lawgiver. Or that the presence of a work of art implies the existence of an artist. The presence of a student implies the existence of a teacher. And here again, we run into problems because our idea of the student-teacher relationship has actually changed over the years. And so a teacher is no longer a sage on a stage, someone you look up to, but more of a guide on the side. Some schools will say, we don't even call them teachers anymore. We refer to them as co-learners. No, I'm serious, it's actually a real thing. This is not the idea of teacher that we are looking at at all. Here's the type of teacher that we are looking at. C.S. Lewis, a writer in the last century, says this. It's imp- talking about education. He says, it implies an immense superiority on the part of the teacher. He is trying to make the pupil a good man. The assumption is that the master is already human, the pupil a mere candidate for humanity. An unregenerate little bundle of appetites which is to be kneaded and molded into human shape by one who knows better. 
In education, the master is the agent, the pupil is the patient. It's the same thing in discipleship. Jesus is the agent, and we are the patients. We are to be kneaded and molded into shape and reshaped by someone that knows better. To use biblical language, he is the potter, and we are the clay. To follow Jesus, to become a disciple, means that you agree to allow your whole world redefined, reoriented. And so, yes, I have all these ideas about what it means to be a good person, how I view relationship. This is what success means. But to be a disciple means that I throw away these ideas and submit to what my teacher says. This is why many times when people are called to put their faith in Christ, it's often framed in terms of surrender. They always tell you, you want to surrender your life to Jesus because we are submitting to a teacher. But it doesn't only happen just that once. As life goes on, we keep encountering our wrong ways of thinking and living, and we exchange them. We surrender and exchange them for Jesus' ways of thinking and living. Do you see that the pattern of the Christian life is actually repentance and faith? I started from, by saying that, I said earlier, that following Jesus is the answer to the question, what does it look like to repent and believe the gospel? But it also walks backwards. Repenting and believing the gospel is the same thing. The answer to the question, what does it look like to follow Jesus? It looks like dropping my old thoughts and picking up Jesus' thoughts. It looks like dropping my ways and picking up Jesus' ways. Repenting and believing. And as we do, Jesus is molding and shaping us. What is Jesus shaping us into? He tells us in Luke chapter 6, he says, every student fully formed, will be like his teacher. Jesus is making us become more like him. This is the entire aim of the entire Christian life, to become more like Jesus. Jesus is changing and shaping how we see the world. And we see three things in this passage that were shaped and reoriented by Jesus Christ. First, he changes who we are. Verse 17 says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, if you check to the rest of the Bible, if we check to the rest of the Bible, we see that this is the only incident where Jesus actually does use this phrase, fishers of men. We have the accounts of the call of three other disciples, Matthew, Philip, Nathanael. Jesus does not tell them anything about fishers of men. I think it's obvious that the reason Jesus tells these guys that he will make them fishers of men is because they are actually fishermen. Because in those days, what you did was, your job was not just your career. It was actually something that shaped everything about you. It determined who you spent your time with, how you spent your time, the way you walked, the way you talked. Your job was your identity. And so what Jesus is doing here by telling them he will make them fishers of men is that he's calling them on, calling them to take on a new identity. But here's the thing. This new identity is still somewhat linked to the old one. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I'm going to turn you into something that is both familiar and at the same time different. You will still be fishing, but you'll be something more than a fisherman. You'll be part of the mission of God and you'll participate in inviting others to be part of what God is doing. 
And this is what God does with us. He uses the familiar aspects of our lives as the building blocks for a greater story. Our work is transformed from just being a source of income into a sacred offering to God. Our resources are transformed from just being means to serve our, our wants and uh, means to serve our needs and wants into tools for the advancement of God's kingdom. Even our past is transformed from being a source of shame into a testimony of God's grace and mercy. When we encounter Jesus, most, most importantly, we begin to see ourselves primarily not as what we do or what we have or where we have been, but as people who are chosen and beloved by God. Jesus changes how we see the world. What else does Jesus change? Verse 18 says, immediately they, speaking of Peter and Andrew, immediately they left their nets and followed Jesus. Now, this does not mean that God always calls us to leave our career. It means that when we encounter Jesus, the things we value change. This is why Peter and Andrew are able to drop their nets and follow him. They had begun to value something else more. What does this have to do with discipleship? At its core, discipleship is an issue of what we love. Discipleship is an issue of what we value. There is something the word student means that we somewhat lost, we have somewhat lost in translation. You see, student comes from the Latin word studium. But the word studium, interestingly, has nothing to do with learning or education. Studium means eagerness, zeal, enthusiasm, even fondness and affection. It is this zeal that then drives the learning. You see that sometimes we place the cart before the horse. A disciple is not primarily one that learns. He is one that loves. We like to think about discipleship in terms of, oh, I need to read my Bible more. Oh, I need to attend church more. And these things are vital. But at its core, they are only serving the goal of intimacy with Jesus. Discipleship is not just a growing knowledge of Jesus. It's not just growing behavior like Jesus. It's also a growing passion and love for Jesus. It is learning to see Jesus as my greatest treasure. It's being able to say with St. Patrick, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I lie down, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ, Christ, Christ. Discipleship, like an author puts it, is not just about knowing and believing, it's also about hungering. And thirsting. That's what it's all about. And we see this all over the Bible. As the deer pants after the water brooks, so my soul contests for you, O God. Who have I in heaven but thee and on earth? There is nothing I desire besides thee. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what discipleship is about. Learning to see Jesus as my greatest treasure. And some of us may be feeling uncomfortable because, or maybe even guilty. Because you're like, I don't do this. This does not describe me. 
I don't value Christ in this way. Are you saying that I'm not a disciple? The answer is no. But here's the good news. The good news is that our value for Christ can be cultivated. Our value for Christ can grow. How? Our value for Christ grows the more we encounter Christ. That's why Peter and Anne were able to leave that, leave their things, because they encountered Christ. But then the question is, how do we encounter Christ? The answer, of course, is that we encounter Christ through his word. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. It's not enough to encounter Christ only by reading his word. We also have to encounter Christ by singing his word. We have to encounter Christ in the place of worship. See what Paul says in Colossians 3.16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. How? Through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Here's how Jonathan Edwards, a theologian, put it. The duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. Now, Jonathan Edwards lived in the 18th century. So here's what the Baba was trying to say. Worship does something to you that you cannot explain. There's a difference between the Lord is good all the time and all my life, you have been faithful. It does something to you. It changes something in you. And I want to propose to you that maybe part of the reason your love for Christ is not growing is because you do not sing. Maybe the part of the reason your love for Christ is not growing because you come to church after adoration. Or you're in, you're here and you're not participating. You're just present, but you're not present. Worship has a way of putting things in perspective. We see God as he come bigger, bigger. He's magnified in our eyes. And we begin to believe with our hearts that God is worthy of our lives. That he is better than the world's best thing. Discipleship changes who we are and what we value. But it also changes who we value. Verse 20 says, immediately... He called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. They left their father and followed him. In a culture that the fifth commandment, straight from the mouth of God himself, was to honor your father and your mother, these men leave their father to follow Jesus. And there are Christians through the ages who have had to give up their family for the sake of the gospel. But that's not all that is going on here. Jesus does not, does not only call James and John away from their family. He calls them into a new family. Jesus eventually calls 12 men. He lives with them. He teaches them together. He commissions them together. Here's what he's showing us. It is impossible to follow Jesus on our own. We learn from Jesus not just by reading his word, but by actively, physically, Observing how his word is worked out in the lives of his people. That's why the Bible is full of so many one another passages. Build up one another. Admonish one another. 
care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, look to the interests of one another, teach one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, provoke one another to good works, pray for one another, confess your faults to one another. I could go on and on. But how can you do all of this when we are not around one another? The Bible has no room for a scenario of a Christian who is not deeply involved with other believers. Part of the reason the Christians, the church is referred to as a body is because we derive our full expression as part of a whole. An eye is a very important part of the body. But if you were to come out of your room and see an eye lying down on your table, just like that, it's a horror and a nightmare. You will not even sleep in your house that night. But well, here's what I think maybe even sadder. An eye on its own robs the body of all the beauty and the fullness that its perspective would have brought. So this year, brothers and sisters, can we make it our goal to stop being horrors and nightmares? Can we stop being solo disciples and become an active part of God's local family? Stop leaving church immediately after service. Start attending small group meetings. Invite someone to your home for lunch. Let's begin the journey of building the deep, intimate relationships without which discipleship is impossible. This leads me to my second point. The second thing we see, I talked about Jesus reorienting us, but also discipleship is gradual. Now, when I say discipleship is gradual, it's a bit counterintuitive, counterintuitive when we are looking at this passage because it does say in verse 18, that immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Speaking about Peter and John, Peter and Andrew. And then in verse 20, immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Yes, they did. I think about it a lot. To leave everything and follow Jesus is not easy. But if we leave this story here, I don't think we are getting a full picture. What we also see in another gospel account in the book of John that this is not the first time these guys were meeting Jesus. In John chapter 1, it says that from 35 to 40, it says, when Jesus identifies, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, when Jesus identified Jesus, um, when John identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, Andrew, another disciple who is believed to be John, went and engaged Jesus. And from verse 39, it says, they came and saw where he was staying, and they slept, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So we see, these guys already knew Jesus. Peter had slept in his house before. And I think it is this previous meeting that paves the way for the remarkable obedience that we see in Mark chapter 1. It's because, precisely because they start small, that they are able to take this giant leap of faith. One of my favorite authors says, we pretend that big changes hang on single decisions, single moments, and they do. But single decisions and single moments in turn have a mountain of smaller decisions behind them. And yes, some of us may actually be at the point where God is calling us to take that leap of faith. But for many of us, maybe God is calling you to stop sitting on your hands and start doing something small like sleeping over, like what Andrew did, that will eventually cascade into something great. Maybe God is calling you to set an alarm so that you can read your Bible and pray. Maybe God is calling you to start doing devotions with your family, to start attending church consistently, 
Why? Because the daily thing, the things we do daily, actually have a way of shaping us. That's why you should do it. What we do daily is really who we are. We become like Christ in the long run by being more like Christ in our daily activities. Here's something else to say in this story. The story of Peter, Andrew, James, and John does not end in chapter 1. They are not perpetually at this high level of faith. What we'll see later is that there are a lot of ups and downs in their journey with Christ. The disciples second-guessed themselves a lot. We see in Mark chapter 1 that immediately Peter left his boat. Left his boat. Well, in Matthew 19, he said, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? James and John immediately left their father. But they went and carried their mother in Matthew 20, next chapter, and to, to secure their investment. He said, she came and knelt down before Jesus. Of course, you say, ah, no, 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 don't kneel down. I said, what do you want? He said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. You see, these guys were just like us. They messed up often. They struggled with their faith. But you know what else they did? They did. They continued following Jesus. And as they did, he continued to change them. God doesn't always change us instantaneously. The Christian work, discipleship is a process. When I started my career on the rig, because I'm an engineer, that's my day job, I had a really harsh boss. I will not say he's wicked because I can't see his heart. But this guy was harsh. And it was not just me. I said, when he's leaving the rig at the end of his siege, the whole rig will be rejoicing. And so, but here's the thing. He was also very active. What do you mean active? He was also very active in fellowship. <laughs> You'll see him clapping his hands. I said, outside the fellowship, when he meets people for the first time, he introduces himself as brother, so, so, and so. But there was this discrepancy between his behaviors and also what he confessed as a Christian. And so one day, as usual, we were complaining about him. And someone said, what pains me the most is that this guy claims to be a Christian. And an older guy that was there said, you guys, hold on. Yes, I agree this guy is harsh. But he's actually a real Christian. Why? Because I knew him when he was not a Christian. <laughs> Anything you're seeing now, he was 20 times worse. Yeah, I said, as harsh as he is, it's only Jesus that could have changed him to be like this. In other words, yes, he has his issues. Yes, he's not where he's supposed to be, but also he's not where he used to be. Christian growth is a journey, brothers and sisters. We like to think it's a straight path, upwards, 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 from glory to glory. <laughs> but there are ups and downs in our work with Christ. And if you look at just this season in life, you may be, you one season in your life, you'll be discouraged because all you see is the downs, all you see are your failures, all you see are the ways things are not working out. But if you zoom out, you will see a trajectory. You will see that God had never stopped working on you. Keep following Jesus. Keep repenting. Keep believing. Stick with the Lord. But most importantly, more importantly, Jesus himself also stuck with his disciples. He knew what he was getting into when he chose fishermen. Fishermen. 
to be his followers. He knew that they would struggle to understand, that they would struggle to believe, that when he gives them power, they will want to use it to burn down a whole village. And that they will ultimately abandon him when he was arrested. But you know what happened? Jesus never abandoned them. Even when one of these men that he calls here, Peter, is going to deny him publicly, not once, not two times, three times, how does Jesus react? John chapter 21 says that Jesus appeared again by the Sea of Galilee and told Peter, follow me. In other words, he was saying, yes, you have betrayed me, but my assignment for you has not changed. Yes, you denied me, but my plan for you is still the same. Follow me. Why? Because I will, I will make you fishers of men. It's a promise. It's a promise. I will do it. God is committed. He's committed to finishing the good work that he has started in your life. My final point. Discipleship is worthwhile. The last thing we see in this passage is the cost of discipleship. Now, a lot of times during protests, protesters like to say, say, say his name. Talk speaking about victims, say his name. Say her name. Say their name. Why? Because it's possible to be somewhat removed from and maybe even dismiss a situation when we are looking at it from an impersonal point of view. But when we know people's names, there's a certain emotional heft to it. It's one thing to say, oh, police killed somebody at Ajah the other day. It's another thing to say, Bolanle Rahim, a pregnant mother, was killed on Christmas Day by the police. And that's what Mark is doing here. He tells us the cost of discipleship by mentioning by name a character in this passage that we don't often talk about. Verse 20 says, they left their father, Zebedee. And followed him. And of course, hindsight is 2020. We are looking at this 2,000 years ago, and we're like, of course, it was a good decision. But imagine that you were Zebedee. You've worked your whole life, you've raised your boys, you've built your business, and at the point where you won't maybe start thinking about taking a back seat, resting, your sons, your two sons, not just one, your two sons. We don't know, maybe they are his only sons, we don't know. They abandon you abandon you to follow some rabbi. But it's not only the end of the story because the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 12 verse 2 that Zebedee's son James will be put to death by King Herod. The mission of God was not only costly to James and John, it was costly to their father as well. And the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the cost of discipleship. It is costly to follow Jesus. We experience this at different levels of intensity. Maybe some of us have remained single because the people that were coming were not Christians or they claimed they were Christians but they wanted sex. A friend of mine, he had the opportunity of cheating to get a really good job and he walked away. And everybody was saying, oh, something better is coming. He never got a better job. Leah Sharibu was, she lost her freedom because she refused to deny Christ. She was 14 years old. The cost of following Jesus is so high that it only makes sense if Jesus is who he claims to be. The cost of Jesus is so, following Jesus is so high that it only makes sense if Jesus is truly the Son of God and he can actually deliver 
on his promises. How do we know that he's the son of God? The Bible tells us in Romans 1 verse 4 that he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is precisely because Jesus resurrected that he ascended, that he is right now seated at the right hand of the Father in power and glory that we can say with the Apostle Paul, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which is to be revealed in us. Why? Because our risen Lord, Jesus, the Son of God, has promised us that if we suffer with him, we will reign with him, that where he is, there we will be also. Therefore, 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 my beloved brothers, as Paul says, be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Hallelujah. But guys, Jesus does not only give us his promises to encourage us further. He also gives us his example. Like Tommy told us last week, it is one thing for somebody to, say, to, to direct you to a path and say, oh, just go. Trust me. It's another thing to know that he himself has walked through that path as well. That he is your trailblazer. Jesus was not calling James and John to do something that he himself had not already done before. He left his family the perfect fellowship of the Trinity and came to earth to die for undeserving sinners like you and me. But also, God also knew what Zebedee, their father, went through as well. Because he too lost his only son for the mission of God. The Bible says that it is because we have a great high priest that can empathize with our situation. We can come boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Is it hard to follow Jesus? Yes. But there is mercy and grace to help in time of need. Are we going to stumble and fail? Yes. But there is mercy and grace to help in time of need. Keep believing. Keep repenting. Keep following Jesus. And he will make you what he wants you to be. Can we rise to our feet? Can we rise to our feet? I'm going to pray in normal of Prayer points. First, I'm going to ask, have you been around Jesus but yet not following him? Are you in the vicinity of Jesus? You have been coming to church for years but you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you are a disciple, you are following Jesus but because of sin, because of disappointment, you have given up. Jesus is calling you to you again and he's saying, follow me. Jesus is calling you, follow me. Can you just tell God, God, help me to follow you. Help me to follow you. Help me to follow you. Jesus still loves you. It doesn't matter what you're, you're, you're stuck in. Jesus still loves you and is able to help you. He's calling us to follow him. He's calling us to follow him. Oh, Jesus, we ask for your help. We pray for as many as want to come to you today. We pray for as many whose hands are weak. We pray for as many who have abandoned you. We ask that you, that you help them to remember that you have not abandoned them. We ask that you help them to remember that your arms are still open wide, that you're still calling them to follow you. We ask, so oh God, that you restore them in the name of Jesus. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, 
We hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City Church Lagos. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. <laughs>